I think I was curious about this kind of at first because, well, one, you, you definitely see these diseases not a whole lot in the United States, but as you travel more, you become more exposed to them. But then I'm, I'm thinking back, like, towards to when I was in, in pharmacy school, and it's like, I don't even remember these medications. Um, so I don't know. How many of you are students? Oh, I can tell there's a lot of students here, but how many of you are, like, medical students? Pharmacy students, are there any? A couple brave people. Nursing. Other students who are like, I don't know what I want to do, but I kind of like everything right now. No? Okay, I probably raised my hand for that one too. But So, so anyhow, my background has is, is largely been in, um, kind of an aside, has been tropical medicine. My, my main background is working with geriatrics in, in that patient population here in the United States. And then we also teach, um, myself and another faculty member at the University of Finley, uh, teach a, a tropical disease elective um, to pharmacy students, which students always kind of like because, again, it's, it's that break from they go to learn about dementia one hour and then the next hour they're talking about Ebola and then they think they have dementia because they don't remember anything. And so it's, you know, you guys, students know how that works where it's like every disease you talk about, say, oh, I think I have this one. Um, so, so hopefully as we go through this, none of you think you have any of these, but we'll see. A um, couple quick housekeeping things. You all hopefully received a, um, an evaluation uh, when you walked in. If you did not, please grab one on your way out, and then please also fill it out and hand it off as you're leaving the room. The other thing, um, we did have a few paper copies of the handout, but we definitely didn't print enough for everybody. Apologies for, for that. Um, but I'm happy to say you can. You should be able to go to the GMHC website. Scroll down, find this um, presentation listed, and you can download the PDF of, of the PowerPoint there. Or my email address is also at the end here today, and you can feel free to send me an email, and I'll happily send you the, the PowerPoint or the, of this. So as we start talking about these treatment of worms and other parasitic diseases, the important CE sort of statement, we don't have anything really to disclose outside of the fact that some of these things that we will talk about are a little bit off um, topic or off-label off from what the FDA would really uh, has approved these for. So objectives to talk about these medications, hopefully learn. So here's worms, right? Um, I told the group yesterday, uh, I think it was Wednesday night, I was working through this with my kids. They were kind of like, what is this, Dad? And, and I said, well, it's a talk about worms. And then I showed them this picture. And that was not the worms they had in mind uh, when they thought I was going to be talking about worms. But uh, these are the, the sorts of worms that we do tend to see more so in humans than the earthworms, nightcrawlers, my kids thought that talk was going to be about. So when you look through these worms, uh, you, the main ones we're, we're usually focused on are the, the roundworms, hookworms, tapeworms, and pinworms. Um, a lot of these you'll see that same, how do we get these? And you see this soil, so kids playing in dirt. Dirt goes into their mouth, that sort of thing. Or the, the infamous fecal-oral route, which is exactly what it sounds like, uh, which, again, is, is something that a lot of people don't want to think about. Um, but when we look at, at roundworms, for example, this obviously is a fairly decent-sized worm when it comes to how many people are infected with this around the world. About Estimates are around a billion people. Um, hookworms, you know, again, very, very similar um, in, in that up to 500 to 750 million people are thought to be infected with them. Um, and, and similarly, you know, the, the roundworms, many patients don't know they have it. Um, and they're just walking around. They have some roundworms, but they're kind of more of a, in a coexistence sort of thing. 
But then you get some patients who can have severe intestinal blockages. They'll get these big balls of worms, and, and that obviously can become a very emergent sort of situation very quickly. Um, hookworm, similarly, patients can have relatively few symptoms, um, up to very severe anemia. And so that's certainly something that a lot of you will see as you're getting out and working with, with patients around the world. Um, tapeworms have a little bit different um, mode of how you acquire them and that it tends to be more likely that you will get it from eating undercooked meat. Um, and it was, you know, when you went to a, a Mexican restaurant last night, and right there, you know, on the things, eating raw or undercooked meat, you know, can lead to bad things. And so this is what one of the things that those are, are talking about. Um, pinworms is probably one of the more common worms that we see here in the United States. And these tend to be in kids, in nursery school, preschool age kids. Um, you see this, Daddy, my bum bum is itchy. Um, I, that itchy bum syndrome. Um, one of the other IBS topics is definitely one of the things that you'll see a lot of times in kids. The bad thing about these pinworms, and we'll see when we get to the treatments, is that their eggs are very resilient. And so a lot of times one person in the house, that preschool age kid got infected, they brought it home to other siblings, to mom, dad, and anyone else who happens to be living in the house. And so that kind of has some importance when we get to the treatment. Uh, overall, worms, the treatment obviously depends on the, the type of worm. We want to make sure we're using appropriate treatment regimen or medication for the type of worm that we suspect. And then the symptoms. Uh, so if that patient has severe intestinal blockage symptoms, that's going to be a different treatment modality than that patient who just has the itchy bum syndrome. Um, so it may involve that supportive care, correcting anemia as much as possible in these patients um, is certainly one of the things that we're looking at from a worldwide perspective. So medications then, and I'm not going to read through all the single dose or all the, the milligram strengths and all that, but point out some similarities to these. And so albendazole is certainly one. Um, the, the next drug we'll talk about, I'll flip here real quick, mabendazole. You can tell probably just from the name they're going to have a lot in similarity. And so albendazole is nice. It's a, pretty much a one-size strength or one-size dose for just about every patient. And for, for many patients, it's just a, a single treatment, um, with the exception there of that pinworm, because those pinworm eggs are resilient. They like to live on the couch and the carpet, wherever, and, and it takes a long time for those eggs to actually die. We'll actually repeat that dose in a couple weeks to help prevent that reoccurrence in that family. Um, adults, pediatric dose, again, very, very similar for albendazole. Um, side effects, mostly GI in nature. As those worms start to die, that can cause some um, kind of immune response in some patients. Uh, the, the drug in and of itself, if you didn't have worms, you'd see nausea, vomiting potentially in some patients. Um, but most patients tolerate this one pretty well. Uh, pregnancy is officially a no, but there's certainly some patients who have had it while they're pregnant. And, and it doesn't seem to, from anything that the uh, World Health Organization and others have, have noted, seem to necessarily cause any problems. But officially, um, it's is kind of a no. Lactation is used with caution. Uh, again, risk versus benefit. Probably all right in most situations. Um, but basically, we're, we're unsure of how much of it or if it is excreted into uh, breast milk. And then availability. You can find this one pretty much wherever you go uh, fairly easily. Here in the United States, both albendazole and this next one, mabendazole, at various times over the last five to ten years have been difficult to obtain just due to manufacturing process. Uh, but I think in, in a lot of the world it's been a lot easier to obtain than here in the United States. But again, here in the U.S., you probably don't have to search too hard or walk through too many pharmacies to eventually find it.
Mubendazole, again, fairly similar, except the patient has to be a little bit more invested in this drug because it's not a single dose for, for the worms. It's twice a day for three days, and then for many of them, they want to repeat. So in general, um, mabendazole is very, very similar, but the dosing regimen is certainly different. Um, side effects, again, mostly GI in nature, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea being what we will see with that, as well as occasionally some headache. Pregnancy, again, largely unknown, um, not recommended for first and second trimester, but again, World Health Organization and, and some governments in, in other countries will still suggest using it, and, and based on the data available, it does seem to probably be safe in many patients. Um, lactation, again, very similar to what we saw with albendazole. In general, use caution. And then availability of this one is, is pretty easy to obtain. Ivermectin, uh, you see here, officially only uh, approved for roundworm. And this is a weight-based drug. So depending how much that patient's going to weigh is, is going to, you know, de- or the, the dose is going to depend on how much that patient actually weighs. And so there's different tables out there. There's apps and all that. You know, don't have to do a whole lot of heavy math. Um, to figure that out. Um, side effects, rash, itching, fever, and, and headaches, as well as the GI side effects. So a little bit different with the rash um, potential, uh, but most patients don't get that. But some patients seem to, this ivermectin seems to cause a little bit of a histamine release in some patients, which can lead to that rash and itching. It's not like a true anaphylaxis sort of reaction. Then pregnancy, lactation, uh, not recommended with ivermectin. Availability is, is fairly easy to obtain this drug um, around the world, depending on um, different global situations and manufacturing processes. Pyrantol. So this is the one you'll see here is um, officially can be used for hookworm and pinworm as well. Another weight-based drug uh, that is for a multi-day or has a multi-day approach to the treatment thereof, but again, only three days um, for hookworm. And then pinworm, you see that repeat in two weeks. Side effects, nausea, diarrhea, tend to be what you see with this one. Pregnancy, lactation, these are both considered to be safe. Uh, this one doesn't seem to cause any harm at all and is, is recommended that can be used. Again, if the patient doesn't really need it, it's probably always best to hold off on a medication until after birth. But keep in mind, if, if mom is infected with worms, that may also have a negative outcome um, on that baby. So, uh, so that risk versus benefit is always very important with these worms in pregnancy. And then availability, again, is, is pretty easy to obtain this one. Proziquantel. This is our medication that we typically see used for tapeworm. So when you know you have a patient with tapeworm, um, that's what you're mostly going to think about, proziquantel. It's nice. It's a one-time dose. Um, side effects. You get into a little bit more of the, the CNS side effects with this one with some dizziness, with some malaise. Um, just not feeling quite right, as well as, again, the, the GI symptoms. Pregnancy, probably all right, not really known. So, you know, another use with caution sort of, of medication. And then lactation, not recommended um, to be used. And availability is around the world. So where are we going with worms? What's next in the treatment with worms? So as with many things right now that we're looking at, making vaccines. Um, it's still weird. That, you know, I have difficulty. How do you make a vaccine against the worm, right? It's, it's a different thing than influenza or coronavirus or anything. 
Um, but they're, they're targeting different, you know, pieces of that worm for the development of that worm. And so, you know, it does make sense. Those are all still very much in development. Will they ever come to fruition? You know, who knows? I uh, used yesterday the example of malaria. You have been working on malaria vaccines for a long, long time. And, and we're still kind of searching for that, that best um, malaria vaccine. So, so it's, it's interesting. Will they ever actually come out about? I don't know. Probably one of the more interesting things being done, at least to me, uh, being done with worms right now is infecting people on purpose with worms. What? That makes no sense. But there's actually a type of whipworm that is being used in patients with Crohn's disease. And so the idea behind some of the theories behind Crohn's disease is we see a lot more of it in, in countries where we have clean diets, where our food is not as heavily contaminated. And so by infecting patients with whipworms on purpose, it then gives the immune system something to attack instead of self. Will it roll out? I don't know. I still, you know, I don't have Crohn's, so I, I have a hard time, you know, and they have to drink these eggs, these, these worms, these whipworms won't replicate in humans. So you have to drink, drink these eggs um, every two to four weeks. And then they see the worms, you know, in the toilet and stuff. And so as a patient without Crohn's, I have a hard time thinking about doing that. Um, my wife, who does have Crohn's, is like, sign me up. And I'm like, okay. Um, and so it, it's just interesting to me that, you know, how we're using worms for potential good. Um, and then there's other endocrine diseases as well where they're continuing to research the, the, the use of worms. So it'll be interesting to see where that, how that ends up. All right. It's another interesting topic. Thank you. So I'm just going to give a plug. Um, this will be an overview of leishmaniasis, but tomorrow I'm giving a presentation for an hour on leishmaniasis exclusively. So if this piques your interest at all, join me tomorrow for more information. Um, this is the geographic distribution of leishmaniasis. You can see that it's – we divide it into antiquated terms called old world and new world. So it's divided by species where the endemic regions are for the parasite. You can see the areas of Africa, the Middle East, kind of southern Europe. Uh, that's what we call the old world. And then the new world is South America and Central America. And the different colors represent the different species of leishmaniasis parasite. Yes. Okay, is this on? Yeah, that one should be on. We okay. can't get pretty close to it. Okay, uh, that's better. Sorry about that. Um, so leishmaniasis is caused by the protozoal parasite uh, in the leishmania genus. It's transmitted by the bite of a sand fly, and most often these bites are uh, silent. You don't feel anything. You don't really know that you've been bitten. It's found throughout most of the tropical and subtropical world, and there's an estimated 12 million people who are infected. Leishmaniasis can cause various uh, syndromes. There's cutaneous leishmaniasis that causes skin sores, and then there's visceral leishmaniasis that presents with fever and splenomegaly and other organ involvement. The other types of leishmaniasis, in addition to cutaneous, which is the most common, diffuse cutaneous might resemble leprosy. It's very difficult to heal. Mucocutaneous is, usually starts off as cutaneous, but it's caused by different species of the leishmaniasis parasite, and it can attack the mucosal areas of the nose, mouth, and throat and be very debilitating for patients. The visceral leishmaniasis, uh, in addition to the splenomegaly, it can infect the liver, the bone marrow, and it's definitely fatal if not treated, and so that's one of the ones that you want to make sure you find and identify. Prevention is difficult because these sand flies are pretty much you know, like I said, ubiquitous and hard to uh, evade. And then there are some vaccines in development. The treatment of leishmaniasis depends largely on the type of leishmaniasis. 
the genus of the parasite and the resistance patterns of where you acquired it. There's a few common medications that we have access to, but this is pretty much the list. We don't really have a huge armamentarium to treat this disease. But liposomal amphotericin is the most commonly used. Sodium stibagglutinate and megalamine antimoniate are the antimonial um, drugs that we have access to. Miltefacine and paramomycin are some relatively new drugs. There is resistance, as I mentioned, in some parts of the world. And then because it's a little bit complicated as we'll go through, we do recommend that if you have a patient that you're suspicious of leishmaniasis, that you reach out to either us at the CDC or one of the other leishmaniasis experts and consult them for management of your patient. So let's talk a little bit about lipotericin amphotericin, liposomal amphotericin B. It is um, available for adults and peds. Uh, for peds, we recommend that they are over one month old. Hopefully you don't have any leishmaniasis cases in very, very young infants. You can use liposomal amphotericin B in cutaneous cases, mucosal cases, and visceral cases. Um, there, as I mentioned at the footnote, there are some alternative FDA-approved regimens for visceral leishmaniasis in immunosuppressed patients. If you have a patient who has HIV or some other immunosuppression and visceral leishmaniasis, it gets a little bit complicated, and there's some alternative regimens. But in general, uh, you treat on days 1 through 5 and day 10, or you treat on days 1 through 7 with a total cumulative dose of 18 to 21 milligrams per kilogram. Now, because these parasites respond differently and each case is rather unique and individualized, sometimes you need to extend the dose of you know, the amphotericin and give a larger amount, or you need to extend the duration. There's lots of side effects, though, and so this is what causes complications. There's cardiac side effects, CNS side effects, skin side effects, endocrine side effects. We think it's probably okay in pregnancy, but we don't know about lactation. Um, but it is available worldwide and in the U.S., so like I said, it's commonly used. The two antimonial drugs, sodium stibagglutinate, was previously available in the U.S. as Pentastam, the brand name. Unfortunately, uh, the area where the antimony was mined has become contaminated and the active product ingredient is no longer available, and so Pentastam is no longer being manufactured worldwide, and so this is no longer an option. But if you are traveling overseas, you might find some generic sodium stibagglutinate depending on where you are. Um, and so it's helpful to at least know that this is, you know, previously an option and potentially an option in some places. It's a 20 or 28-day course depending on whether you're treating cutaneous or mucosal visceral leishmaniasis. There are quite a bit of side effects as well. None of these medications are pleasant to take. Um, aching, arthralgia. GI upset, QT prolongation can all happen with this particular um, medication. We don't recommend using it in pregnancy or lactation um, because we just don't know enough about it. The next antimonial medication is megalamine antimoniate. This one has been well used outside of the U.S. for a very long period of time. Um, if you read any of the PAHO, the Pan American Health Organization recommendations, they use it quite a bit. Um, they use it in Israel and other places. We have recently uh, gotten access to it in the U.S. Um, we, we can walk you through it if you contact us at the CDC. We don't have um, an IND with FDA yet, so it's a little bit tricky. The physicians have to get their own individual IND, and then you have to talk to Sanofi to uh, send it over from France. But you can use it if necessary. Um, and it is a pretty good drug to treat a lot of these leishmaniasis species. 
Unfortunately, the side effects are similar, aching, arthralgia, GI upset, QT prolongation, and we don't recommend it in pregnancy or lactation. Miltefacine is a good drug because it's one of the only ones that we have an oral option for. So it's an oral drug that either comes in 10 milligram tablets or 50 milligram tablets. Unfortunately, the 10 milligram tablets are not available here in the U.S., and so if you are using it for a pediatric patient, you often have to get it compounded and find a compounding pharmacy. So that presents a little bit of a challenge. But if they are of a certain weight, between 30 and 44 kilograms or over 45 kilograms, the pediatric patients can take the 50 milligram tablets, and obviously the adults can take the 50 milligram tablets as well. But you can see it's an entire month-long course for 28 days, and so this requires a lot of diligence on the part of the patient to remember to take it every single day. It is FDA-approved for these particular leishmaniasis species, um, for cutaneous mucosal and visceral leishmaniasis, but we do also see physicians treat uh, patients with other leishmaniasis species outside of the FDA approval process within the practice of medicine. Um, the side effects are nausea, vomiting, and unfortunately there are some implications for fertility, both for men and women. So you want to take that into consideration when you're choosing uh, the drug for your patient. Absolutely do not use this during pregnancy. It is teratogenic, and so you cannot use it. Uh, we don't know about lactation. And it's available in the U.S. You do have to contact the Profunda marketer in order to acquire it. You can't just write a prescription and send it to your local pharmacy. The topical treatment option that we have for leishmaniasis is called paramamycin. And we use it for both adults and kids, and we use it for cutaneous leishmaniasis. If a patient has mucocutaneous leishmaniasis, you cannot use this because you need to use a systemic drug. Um, but this is an option for simple, straightforward cutaneous. It does have to be compounded because of the different ingredients. You have to bring the paramomycin and the ointment and the carrier fluid to the compounding pharmacy and, and all mix it together. So that uh, creates a little bit of a logistic challenge. But it, it is a pretty good medication and works fairly well. The side effects are local irritation, erythema, and pain. And like I said, it is available worldwide. We don't really know about its use in pregnancy or lactation when given IM, but just for local cutaneous, it should be fine for topical. So there are some vaccines that are being um, created against leishmaniasis, being studied and developed, and DNDI is an organization, uh, the name is Drugs for Neglected Diseases Initiative, and they're evaluating new medications and current medication regimens with the hopes of finding less toxic and more options and more highly available medications. Um, the organizations that are involved in studying leishmaniasis are the WHO, PAHO, ASTMH, and IDSA. Um, and they, the, the leishmaniasis experts would be involved in those particular organizations, updating the guidelines and making sure that we have access to the medications. All right, now on to Chagas disease. All right, so I, I always think Chagas disease is, is interesting. Um, why? Well, I, I kind of like history as well as medicine stuff, and, and there's a lot of history. There's a lot of, of research actually going into the history of Chagas disease. Um, they are, you know, continuing to do research in, in Incan mummies with the Chagas disease. You know, how did people 2,000 years ago, did they die of Chagas disease? And, and, and so it's, it's interesting to me from that perspective as well as the, the medical part of it. Um, and so Chagas disease, you, know, you see this picture of this triatamine bug here. That's very important for how this is actually spread. Uh, and when you look at 
additional background information about it. It's caused by a parasite that is contained within that bug. Now, it's not necessarily the process of that bug biting you, like the TC fly or the mosquito or others. Um, it's the process of when that bug bites you, the president leaves behind on your skin. So it's fecal matter um, actually is where this parasite is, is at. And then it likes to bite up around the eye or around the mouth while you're sleeping at night. And you don't even realize it. So you don't realize it's not a painful bite. You don't realize it, but it causes a little bit of irritation. And so then you rub that present it left behind into your eyes. And that's where you see this Romagna sign down in the picture there. And so that's one of the signs that you can see in a patient who has, was bit by one of these bugs, that they may now be infected with this parasite. So the parasite's called Trypanosoma cruzi, um, which uh, is, again, found only in North and South America is where you're going to find this particular parasite. Um, estimates range around 10 million as far as the number of people infected with this. That number might be a little bit on the low side, might be a lot on the low side. It's kind of hard to know for sure exactly how many people. I think one of the more important numbers um, about Shias disease, just because it's not something I don't think is widely talked about, is that there's 300,000 people estimated in the United States who have Shias disease. The vast majority of those were not obtained in the United States. They were immigrants um, who have moved into the United States and brought this with them. Um, but there are estimates that maybe up to 10,000 uh, were actually obtained here in the United States. This bug does live in the United States, mostly in the southern half of the country. Kentucky, just to kind of give you a geographic uh, idea, is kind of right on the borderline of where that tritamine bug likes to live. Um, but definitely Texas, Florida, Georgia, um, that bug is, 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 can be found. Um, the other thing that can be difficult about trying to figure out some of these numbers is many patients, they'll get bit by this bug, they'll get this uh, trypanosoma parasites floating around inside of them, but all they get is kind of mild flu-like symptoms, and, and that's it. Now, I don't know how many of you in this room in the last 6 to 12 months have had kind of that traditional mild flu-like, just feel kind of blah, maybe have a little bit of a fever. A couple days, you go back to your normal stuff and don't really think anything of it. And so for many patients, that's how they initially get infected. That's how they present in that acute phase. Um, Left untreated, though, is where you get problems. And this is not problems six months, 12 months down the road. This is 20 years or more down the road when these problems can start to show up. Um, so what happens is when you get bit by this, this bug, you get the, the protozoal parasite floating around in your body. And, and some fairly plentiful numbers at that point in time in that acute phase. And then it kind of comes into this, this homeostasis, I guess, with the, your own immune system. Numbers die down, and it hides. It hides very well in your body. Unfortunately, over time, where it's hiding, it can cause some problems. And so the heart, you can start to develop arrhythmias. Um, that can lead to heart failure, or the heart failure may come about without any arrhythmia. And then it also can cause... Um, the esophagus, the esophagus, the esophagus to enlarge, um, as well as the colon to enlarge. And so you can have swallowing difficulties. You can have patients who develop um, severe constipation. And so um, that is certainly something that is becomes problematic. Prevention is very difficult. This is a very difficult bug to eradicate. It hides very well. It only comes out at night uh, when patients are sleeping. Uh, in parts of the world where they have grass-thatched huts, it likes to live in the grass. It likes to get in the teeny tiny little cracks within the walls of these houses. And so very, very difficult to eliminate, but that would be the ultimate goal is to eliminate the, idea, the areas where this bug lives. 
So here you can kind of see the dark orange. Um, so Central and South America is where this is endemic. And then you see where other parts of the world where it's not endemic, but it's present. And so lots of the U.S., lots of Canada, uh, Western Europe, Australia, those are your immigrant um, populations who have moved into those countries. And so very unlikely if you go to Australia that you will get Chagas disease, but there are patients there who do have it. Um, so treatment, what do we actually do? Well, for any patient who you know has Chagas disease, you should treat them. Why? Again, even in the acute phase, it may be very mild and self-limiting, but you want to treat them. You want to get rid of that bug, get rid of that parasite, before 20, 30 years down the road they develop the severe symptoms from chronic damage. Um, once that chronic damage has happened, at that point in time, we treat the symptoms the patient has. So if they develop heart failure, we now pull out our handy-dandy heart failure guidelines, and they get your beta blocker, your ACE inhibitor, your oriangiotensin receptor blocker, and you go through that um, sort of, of paradigm. You don't worry as much about treating the bug at that point in time because the damage is done. Um, and, and trying to eliminate the bug is, is, is very difficult to do at that point in time anyways. Um, cure rates, if we give this medication to the patients um, immediately after they were infected with it or very soon after, uh, we can actually have a pretty good success at getting rid of it. Longer again, though, that someone has been infected, the more difficult it is that we will be able to cure them. Um, medications that we'll talk about. Unfortunately, they can have pretty severe side effects. They make you feel not good, and we'll see that you're on these medications for weeks and weeks and months and months. And so it's not like worms where it's do handle it for one dose or for three doses. You're on these drugs for quite a, a period of time. Um, side effects in children, fortunately, are less severe, so the, the medications tend to cause fewer side effects or is not as severe in children, and so that is certainly helpful. Um, so benzonidazole and nifertamox are kind of the two that we see used most often for these patients, and benzonidazole is the one that we typically prefer because it's the one that tends to be a little bit tolerated uh, or tends to be tolerated better. And so this is a weight-based dosing. So if you treat the, the chronic phase of that, you, you don't seem to really necessarily show down the, the, slow down the progression of heart failure. The arrhythmias don't go away. It's there. You're now in that cascade of heart failure, and so you have to go through the heart failure guidelines. So, and it's very, very difficult once they've developed that in that chronic stage um, to actually eradicate the, the protozoa from that, that patient's body. Um, so benzonidazole, weight-based. So it's, uh, you know, again, based on that patient, just like we saw some of the worm medications. Um, side effects. If I put percentages in this, you would see the percentages are all a lot higher than even what we talked about with the GI side effects. And so nausea um, can be very problematic. Allergic dermatitis, neuropathies, so some CNS sort of effects um, are things that you can see as well. I forgot to mention with the dose. This is a commitment, right? So you see here, 60 days. Some patients, some... Um, uh, some guidelines will actually recommend using them for 90 days um, to try to cure that patient to an even better degree or have better success at curing the patients. Pregnancy, lactation, largely unknown. Um, so, again, risk versus benefits uh, for these patients when it comes to that. Availability, um, this is now available in the United States. If you go to that benzinitazoltablets.com, they can help you figure out where the best place for you to be able to get this. Um, it's also available fairly readily in parts of the world where we, where we do see um, patients with Chagas disease. Other considerations, 
Uh, this particular medication, you tend to have a little bit less nausea as well as better absorption if the patient takes it uh, with food. And so that's one of the, the big recommendations for that one. Then nifertamox. Um, the dose, again, weight-based. Now we're getting three divided doses for 60 to 90 days, usually 60 days. Um, side effects, all these have a little bit higher side effect rate uh, than what we saw with benzinidazole. Um, but benzinidazole, I'm sorry, pregnancy, lactation, again, largely unknown as to how that is, is going to work out. Availability um, is, if, if you go to lampit.com, you can find out where you can get it. This was one that I looked the other day, and it does look like the, the pharmacy I work at, we could actually order it in. Um, now, I didn't continue on going down the, the, the process of that because it's, it's fairly new that we've been able to actually order this in. Sometimes with these drugs, there's more of a paperwork thing that you have to fill out. So whether I could order it in and it show up next day or, or in a couple weeks, I, I didn't go down the process of trying to figure that out. Um, other considerations, again, take with food is important with this one as well. So where is Chagas disease going in the future? Well, there's quite a few drugs that are being looked at. This is certainly one that is on uh, the radar of many uh, people, many researchers who are trying to figure out better treatments for this because it is um, becoming, I think, more well-known that patients can uh, become afflicted with this, and then it has those, those side effects of the, the parasite that come about decades longer or decades later. Uh, Vanderbilt's working on experimental drug. Um, you know, anytime you see 100% cure rate in an animal model, you have to be careful. Um, just because it works at 100% in mice in Vanderbilt doesn't mean it's going to work nearly as well in humans or that it doesn't have other side effects, but at least it's something that is, is maybe potential to be there in the future. So something to keep an eye on, I, I think, when it comes to the treatment of Chagas disease. All right. Try to fix your microphone. Here. Thank you. Getting lower. Yes. So Chagas disease is also known as American trypanosomiasis, and now we're going to talk about African trypanosomiasis. So they're both trypanosome parasites, and so when you look at them under the microscope, to the um, undiscerning eye, they look relatively similar. Sometimes they're even confused with a clump of platelets that are kind of in a curved crescent shape. But uh, my CDC colleagues in the lab um, who are doing this diagnosis all the time can tell that there's differences in morphology in the way that the American trypanosome is visualized and the way that the African trypanosome is visualized. So the African trypanosome, African trypanosomiasis is caused by the protosomal parasite in the trypanosoma brucei uh, species. It's transmitted by the bite of a tsetse fly in the glossinia species. And these tsetse fly bites are something that you usually recognize and you don't forget. It's very painful. Sometimes it causes a chancre at the bite site. So it's not like the um, sand flies or the mosquitoes that can bite you without you knowing about it. The, there's two different forms of human African trypanosomiasis based on the location in Africa where they are endemic. And these parasites are named after old country names. So you can see Gambiensis looks like Gambia. Rhodiensis looks like Rhodesia, which was the former Zambia, Zimbabwe area. So TB Gambiensis is the human African trypanosomiasis parasite in 24 countries in West and Central Africa. The TB Rhodiensis uh, parasite is endemic in 13 countries in East and Southern Africa. And the reason to make this distinction as we go along, you'll see, 
but they present differently, they have different reservoirs, they're treated differently. So even though they're in the same family, they're very different parasites and diseases. So the WHO is making a very concerted effort, because this is such a disease with high morbidity and mortality, to try to eliminate it within the African con continent. And 20 years ago, over 90% of the cases were caused by the Gambiensis form in West Africa, and there were at least 27,000 cases over 20 years ago. Now, within the last year or so, we've been able to get the cases down to less than 1,000 across the continent, which is great. And so from our standpoint in the, you know, in the U.S., we have seen some cases from travelers who've come over or from people who have relocated from Africa to the U.S. And so we are working with the WHO to try to count and record any cases that happen in the U.S. so that our numbers are in the worldwide numbers as well. So the symptoms are broken into two different stages. There's the first stage and the second stage. The first stage is also called hemolymphatic, and the second stage is also called CNS. The first stage includes the Schenker site bite, where the fly bites you. There's fever, headache, weakness, lymphadenopathy, hepatosplenomegaly, and weight loss. So kind of nonspecific symptoms. Once it uh, progresses to the second stage, that's when you see the increased sleepiness, the daytime somnolence, kind of the classic things that you think about when you think about um, sleeping sickness. Nocturnal insomnia, hallucinations, delirium, anxiety, emotional instability, and then just general CNS symptoms of motor sensory and neurologic signs and symptoms. The only way to prevent this is to avoid getting bitten by a tsetse fly. This um, table lists the different species and stages of the disease and the first-line treatments and the alternative treatments. Uh, we don't, just like leishmaniasis, we don't have a ton of options for treatment, and so this is what you have. Um, in the U.S., the majority of these are stored at CDC. Because the need is so limited, they're not available commercially in the pharmacies, and so you'll have to call us to, to get release of these medications. But for the West African TB gambiensis, if it's the first stage, we recommend that you use pentamidine, and if that doesn't work, fexinidazole. And then for the TB gambiensis CNS second stage, you use two drugs at one time, the nifertamoxin and flornithine, and if that doesn't work, you use the same two drugs, but you extend the duration of the flornithine that you use, or if you don't have access to nifertamox, you give flornithine by itself. For the East African version, the TB rhodiensis, the first stage, we recommend ceramin for the first-line treatment, and if that doesn't work, pentamidine. And then for the CNS stage of the East African rhodiensis form, malarsoprol is pretty much the only option. This is an algorithm that the WHO recommended in 2019 for the management of the West African gambiensis hat. And again, remember they're focusing on the West African because that's the majority of the burden of the cases. They're also focusing on this with this new algorithm because fexinidazole, as I just mentioned in that table, is a relatively new drug that was discovered by DNDI, and it's an oral drug that can be used as an outpatient. And so in these rural settings in Africa, um, where they don't necessarily have the capacity that we do to bring people into the hospital and to monitor them during their illness, they wanted to give providers a, a schematic and a flowchart of when to use fexinidazole and when to use something else that needed more uh, personnel support and more inpatient monitoring. So I would um, advise and advocate that in the U.S., since we do have access to hospitals and inpatient monitoring, that we probably wouldn't recommend outpatient therapy. We would recommend you know, having people monitored in the hospital, but we can, um, we can use all of these drugs here in the U.S. as well.
So let's go through them one by one. Suramin is used in both adults and pediatric patients. It requires a test dose to make sure that people uh, do not have a reaction to it, like anaphylaxis or some other allergic reaction. It's given over sequential days, so on day one, day three, day seven, day 14, day 21, um, and it requires several hours of IV infusion. It's used for the first stage of the rhodiensis form. Yes, ma'am. To the sermon? Um, well, if not, not that many. Yeah, but they recommend doing it just in case. Uh, side effects include diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, headache, and lethargy. We don't know about its use in pregnancy and lactation, and this is one of the ones that's only available through the CDC. Malarsoprol is another drug um, that is used for the second stage of rhodiensis infection. This one is a simple, straightforward 10-day course. You get the same drug, same dose for 10 days IV. We recommend using a corticosteroid for pretreatment to reduce the risk of encephalopathic reaction with this drug, and the side effects include diarrhea, vomiting, and headache. It's not recommended in pregnancy, and we don't know about lactation, and it's also only available through the CDC. Pentamidine is commercially available, and it's frequently used worldwide as well. Um, adults and peds use the same dose, weight-based dosing, and it's given IV or IM for seven days. It is a two-hour infusion if you do it with the IV, and it's used for the first stage of the Gambiensis infection. The reactions can be just an injection site reaction, increased creatinine, or nausea. It's unknown for pregnancy, and it's contraindicated for lactation. So fexanidazole, as I mentioned, is a relatively new drug. Here in the U.S., uh, you can get it through Sanofi. In Africa, it's available through WHO. Um, as I mentioned, we are trying to coordinate and work with WHO to track any cases of human African transmysis. So if you are a provider and you're interested in using fexanidazole, we would please request that you contact us as well just to make sure that we are aware of the patient and make sure that you know, the diagnosis is accurate and can help you get the medication. But it has a peds dose, an adult dose, and it has different uh, dosing amounts based on the weight and the age and the patient. Um, it's used for the first stage of the Gambiensis infection and the second stage of the Gambiensis infection only if the white blood cells in the CSF are less than 100. The side effects include nausea, vomiting, anorexia, headache, insomnia, dizziness, tremor, and weakness. And this one can actually be given in pregnancy. You just have to wait till after the first trimester. Um, the WHO guidelines suggest that it might be okay to use in lactation, so that's good as well. So the combination therapy of two drugs, nifertamox and aflornithine. The nifertamox is the same drug that we just heard uh, Charlie talk about for Chagas disease. And so it's commercially available. You don't have to call us to get it. But the aflornithine is only available through the CDC. When you give them together, they have two different durations. So the nifortamox is for 10 days, and the aflornithine is for 7 days. And then if you do the alternative therapy with the longer duration of aflornithine, you extend that duration uh, to 14 days, so another week. It's used for the second stage of the Gambiensis infection, and the side effects of aflornithine include headache, arrhythmia, GI you know, symptoms, neutropenia, fever, arthralgias, and myalgias. Aflornithine is not recommended in pregnancy, and we don't know about uh, in lactation, but the guidelines from the WHO suggest that it's possibly okay to use.
So all of these drugs, as I mentioned for the HAT uh, cases, are limited to CDC access. But for any other cases, even if we don't have the drug, we have a consult service. And so we're happy to talk through with you about your patient, make sure that you're getting the right diagnosis, thinking about them correctly, thinking about the exposure history. So this is how you can access um, our parasitic inquiries hotline, either by email or by phone. So we have a couple questions. I don't know. Do you want to go through the questions this time? Oh, you're already up there. Okay. So we're trying to make sure you guys stayed awake. Which type of worm is Prodiquantil able to treat? Everybody agree, tapeworm? Okay, good job. Um, leishmaniasis. Which of these treatments for leishmaniasis is safe to use in pregnancy? Say it louder. None of them. That is correct. Do not use any of these in pregnancy, please. Um, okay, Chagas disease. Why should all patients with Chagas disease be treated even if they are currently asymptomatic? D? B. 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 Not D. Nobody wants D. And what is the best way to prevent African transmyosis? Avoid tetsy fly bites, yes. Does anybody know how you can avoid tetsy fly bites? Mosquito net? Uh, long sleeve clothes. Well, it doesn't usually come into your home. Usually it's in, like, safari vehicles. So wearing long sleeve clothes, avoiding the bush areas where they live. What time of day is it usually out? It's usually in the daytime. Yeah. Okay, any questions? Yes, ma'am. In a lot of areas So it's hard to find anyone to say that that is a good idea. Um, but the evidence that what is out there is, is pretty limited. But because there are a lot of places that, that do that and they haven't seen an increase in the number of birth defects or anything like that, that's why it's largely assumed it's probably okay. It's just no one's really ever taken the time to look at that specifically to know for sure. You're saying routine use in, yeah, routine like use in pregnancy hasn't been studied. As far, yeah. Right. But we want to make sure that the moms don't have iron deficiency anemia. You know, there's reasons to give it that would help the, birth, the health of the baby. But pregnant women are a very hard population to study, to get ethical approval to study, especially in the U.S. and then overseas as well. So there just aren't. Yeah, and I think that's part of it is, is the ethics. It's very hard to do that. And then here in the United States where it's still difficult, but there's kind of pathways, you know, mm -hmm. how to do studies of pregnant women. We don't have that problem. And so it's – I think that's so kind of So if you find funding and resources, maybe the studies can happen. Yeah, I know, right? Well, that's yeah. – That's the thing. Any other questions? Well, thank you for your time. Please fill out the survey form and, and turn it in as you're exiting. And then there's another leishmaniasis presentation tomorrow. You can come back and learn that.